Hey everyone, welcome to Admit Money. This is actually the first time I think I'm recording the podcast without the uh, avatar on. So uh, we're, we're in for a treat because I got my good friend uh, Sergio Silva, who uh, I decided for the last episode of 2022, I asked him to come on uh, as the senior director of Web3 at Fireblocks and the co-founder of Neon Dow. Uh, I figured there'd be nobody better to uh, to break down the wild ride uh, of this past year, you know, from the merge to the war on Ukraine to FTX. Uh, I think we're going to dissect a lot of things uh, that have been happening over the last 365 days. Uh, so please welcome Sergio Silva. Hey, Sergio, how are you? Hey, G. Thanks for having me. So nice to uh, to see your face. Um, I know, right? It, on the everybody gets to see it. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, so how are you? Are you where are you at the moment? Are you home visiting family? I'm at my mom's house in northern Mexico, as you can see from the background. She's really into Christmas and books, and so I'm sitting here on her desk. She's actually a bit of an educational TikToker. She's a teacher, uh, so she records videos, and um, yeah, I'm all I'm using her her setup today. Yeah, and, and I think to start, like I wanna go back to like when we first met, uh, which was at the punks sotheby's auction in may of last year and that was and i remember i think that was what was that a day or a week after you quit your job at barclays it yeah, was like so right it's actually christie's then, right? it's actually christie's which is down oh, the street yeah, from sorry. barclays yeah. yeah yeah so i had just uh i've been a couple of weeks that i gave notice they asked me to stay to help with the you know, transition um and Christie's was doing first ever punks auction they had just come off the people 69 million dollar auction Pack was scheduled to be at Sotheby's, or had just been at Sotheby's, Mad Dog Jones at Phillips. So it was one of those exciting times where like, we're thinking mainstream, traditional art adoption, here we go. Showed up to Christie's, a bunch of humans um, who I had no idea who they were. They just, you know, you don't know who's going to be there. And I think it was the first time that I realized, hey, I actually don't know what my internet friends look like. <laughs> yeah, I, and I remember we started chatting because as we were walking through that tour, and then we just kind of hit it off because we both had uh, our traditional finance background and, you know, you were just leaving uh, Barclays. I'm like, yeah, I, I uh, had a very similar journey, even though I didn't work at a, at a bank. It was just, you know, one of those things where it's like, this just makes sense. This is the future. Right. And I think that that's really where our, our friendship initially started. And, you know, we've been in uh, down, down the rabbit hole, I think on, on this wild ride together. And it's, it's always good. Cause like, sometimes like, I feel like we'll gut check each other every once in a while. We'll be like, yo, like, what do you think of this? Right? Like, what, like this trend, right? Like macro wise. Cause I think a lot of times in the NFT space, it gets the macro kind of gets lost uh, for the micro. Uh, and so I, I always, I always like kind of bouncing ideas off you back and forth, just knowing kind of where your head's at and where, where you, what you were doing before this. Oh, likewise. And I appreciate the friendship over the last it's been 18 months. Um, I, Maybe your audience doesn't know, but I've said in a few podcasts and interviews, actually, the reason why I found punks was because the Defiant wrote an article about you buying your uh, your ape. And that's what caught my attention. And that's how I ended up down that rabbit hole. So after an hour at Christie's hanging out, realizing, you know, we have the Latino background, the traditional finance background, you know, finally, like, you know, what's your name? And you said, I'm G Money. And I was like, what? Um, it was really, really <laughs> fun. And and it's amazing to have that kind of connection in the space. I think one of the things we've all realized as we've gone through this experience is that it's really about, you know, people say the community and what, what composes community is the people, the people behind the avatar. So it's it's been an amazing experience for sure. 
Yeah, for, for sure. And, you know, it's it's funny because as I'm thinking about, you know, in preparing for this, as I was thinking about, like, what has the last year been like? And I remember specifically, I specifically remember our Basel last year. That was literally the top. And like we were there, you know, ETH is above like maybe 4,500 at that point. And I remember I was out one night and like ETH dropped like, you know, somewhere like five or 10%. And people were like, yeah, like buy the dip. And, you know, I was in that included, right? And uh, here we are a year later where ETH is down, you know, 70 plus percent uh, from the highs. And being like, oh, wow, like a lot of shit has happened in the last year. Um, I would say, I, I, what do you think is the most significant event that happened this year, in your in your opinion? Wow, crypto, NFTs, macro. Um, I'd say, it, let's say with crypto, let's say crypto, macro crypto. Yeah, I think the realization that adoption curves and price curves follow different patterns. What I mean that, you know, as you're saying, late last year, probably we have the most amount of people looking at crypto, looking at NFTs, and you would have expected that price to follow into this year. The reality is, um, as you know, markets tend to be efficient. And so they sniff out that future and what that might look like. And so the fact that the price completely went against what we thought was you know, broader adoption and the birth of so many new use cases that we're seeing today. Um, and this was on the back of obviously macro things happening and the Russian and Ukraine war and everything else. I think that's the biggest thing. It's, it's just the fact that, you know, crypto got so large that it's now also a macro product in a way. And that, you know, we've learned to kind of almost respect that and have to look outside our little bubble. And, you know, I think one of the benefits of becoming more mainstream, seeing crypto in the Wall Street Journal and on CNBC and on Bloomberg, also means that you know we're going to start seeing higher correlations to some of the things that more closely resemble it like tech stocks and you know new companies new technology and the like yeah i i agree with you right i think uh and this is something that i always spoke about right and like the reason why i i really liked nfts when i got into them is that you know in a zero interest rate environment right like Find the thing that has the most convexity, right? Find the thing that's going to move the most with the least amount of incremental dollars, right? And so it's like find a market that was liquid enough, that was large enough to, to get a position in that if it was going to increase, you would be rewarded uh, nicely for that. And that's initially what drove me uh, into the NFT space. But I think as I've seen it mature, right, it's, it's interesting, right? Because you're still here, right? I'm still here. And we're obviously, you know, price... I think matters to a certain extent because I don't think anybody would have spoken. We wouldn't be talking about NFTs right now if they didn't have the 2021 that they did, right? The whole reason why people know what NFTs are in general is because of the price action that, you know, the wild speculation that ended up happening and the incredible price moves both to the upside and to the downside. But I do think to your point, right, is like the macro really impacts everything, right? And I think one, it, it's funny because as, you know, sometimes I, I go through when I'm scrolling through NFT Twitter and like people that probably otherwise would have had no idea about macroeconomics and interest rates and like the Fed are now like experts in like, you know, like seven out of the last nine times CPI is printed, blah, 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 like that has led to this. And it's always funny, but I'm like, well, at the very least, like people are a little more financially literate, right? Um, that otherwise probably wouldn't have cared about, you know, macroeconomic policy before. No, Which I think is really incredible. 
yeah it's so good to see too people really like going and, and educating themselves i think you know people point their fingers at the macro this year that everything's down um not just crypto but pretty much every market the reality is macro was also the reason why we giga pumped in 2020 and 2021 right like people just being stuck at home a lot of governments uh just printing out free money handing it out mailing it out in checks and the like and so it went both ways obviously you know in bull markets everybody thinks they're a genius bear markets that's really when you know you find out who's been swimming naked or just we're going along for the ride without knowing um so it's been super interesting it's been great to see because uh, at the end of the day um one of the big crypto things with DeFi, for example is you know being able to democratize finance and whether we like it or not you know the exercises that we're going through today you know the 10 10,000 2 million people left on, on on crypto twitter and the like are really going through a stage where they're actually having to go out and learn about not just macro but also micro uh, obviously as they're building up projects and different things doing their own research they're coming to find out that the economics matter supply demand price and everything and so it's been uh, it's been really good to see in that sense hopefully folks don't lose too much money um but i think it's also all part of the game yeah no i i, I totally agree and i think it's it's funny because i think we've seen that uh mature level ma maturing of of the industry to some extent right and i will say like i always commend you for for being kind of like that voice of reason right where i mean i remember i don't i don't remember exactly how long ago but you were like i i think eth was at like 17 or 1800 and you were like it's it's going lower so be prepared for it right and that was at a time when people were like oh this is the bottom this is the bottom and you know even more recently with uh you buying some ape coin right like purely like as a trade like the like forget what you think about like apes as an ecosystem or whatever it's just purely as a trade and like i i respect that because like at the end of the day like that that's that's our background you know like i definitely don't trade nearly as much as i used to i don't think you do either but at the end of the day like sometimes if there's price dislocation you're like all right well you know here's here's the setup and i i know i was in a couple group chats and i and i saw your your tweets about it about like your thesis right like as a trader right like i never would necessarily write like papers like i wouldn't write a dissertation on why i was taking a trade it would be like well here's like my five bullet points of why this would work and like you know here's some cons why it might not work but like i'm putting on the trade and this is what i'm risking and this is what i expect to make right so i always appreciate you like sharing those thoughts uh because i I think it, it helps educate people at the same time as well, right? Of like, what is what does the thought process look like going into it and not just like, I, I like the art and so like I'm buying it, right? Because there's a lot more that goes into decision-making behind, behind being successful and profitable in not just NFTs, just in general. No, thanks, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I think, you know, we're all here to make ourselves better in a way. For some people, that's just profit maxis and they're in and out stuff. For some other people, they're building things like you have over the last two years with Admit One and, and you know, the branding around your punk and everything else. And for some of us, it's just a combination of things. And so to the degree that I can use my previous experience to, to help others and also take back from you know crypto twitter nft twitter and learn from them uh for example you know, i'm not a gamer i've never been a gamer and um i've learned so much from people who have that gaming background and understand the you know economics and everything behind it so it's uh it's an incredible space in that it's so small and so cliche but so early that we can all you know pass around that level of like information and help each other learn and get better and grow and hopefully make a ton of money why not <laughs> exactly. Let's talk about, I guess, 2022 and 
I guess, what were some trends that you witnessed? What do you think was the most underrated trend that you witnessed in 2022 in the NFT space? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the fact that we were too hyped up, that we were at the top of the bubble, really blinded people to the reality. Right. I remember seeing a lot of, you know, there's really smart people with like statistics and stuff on Twitter saying, hey, there's 200,000 wallets interacting with NFTs. And, you know, every collection was minting out 10,000. So you start thinking, well, if this is going to grow um, and there's only 200,000 people and every collection has 10K, it really starts to get very, very thin. And I think, you know, I don't, the underrated is a, is a difficult word, especially in a, in a space that, continues to go exponential and will continue to do so as we go through time. But I do think kind of being a little bit more mature and have, being more cautious um, was something that was very well, well rewarded uh, as we look back through the year. I think going into the year saying, hey, let's take a pause and let's really think about this. I think it would have helped a lot more people survive the year a little better or even you know put on profitable shorts or hedges um, which is something that, that it's hard to do when it feels like the FOMO is just driving you to continue buying and, you know, we're all going to make it and posting videos of, you know, music and songs are all about, you know, going to the moon and the like. So I think underrated uh, balance, I would say that's, that's the word that I'm looking for, really being balanced in the approach, making sure that you leave yourself some room for capturing that convexity, convexity that you highlighted, but at the same time, you know, grounding yourself and saying, this is why this makes sense or doesn't make sense and being happy with passing on things. Right. Yeah. I think um, it's interesting. Like when I think of like what I think was most underrated that I probably didn't expect was for the NFT market to hold up as well. It is as it has held up at the high end. Right. Especially with like over leverage in terms of like every fund that we thought were the smartest guys in the room blowing up uh, before our eyes and being like, you know, I'm like, well, like, you know, I don't, I don't check the punk explore every day. And then like, you know, randomly like logging in on like the end of November being like, oh, I wonder what punks are doing. I'm like, oh shit. Like the floor has stayed pretty, pretty, pretty constant, despite the fact that there's been a ton of leverage leading the system. And I think that's probably just a function of the fact that there isn't much leverage in NFTs at the moment. Um, and I don't know uh, if that continues, right? Like if I think next bull run, we'll probably see a lot more leverage in the NFT space. So I don't even know if NFTs will be quote unquote as good of a store of value going forward. But I thought that to me, that was like an underrated trend that I didn't expect to see. It's like, if you told me that ETH was going to pull back 70% over the course of a year, I'd probably, I'd be like, yeah, like I'd expect, I'd expect your blue chip assets to still be higher than where they were at the end of 2020. But I'd expect, I don't think that, I wouldn't have guessed that the punk floor would have been here if you told me what ETH was going to do over the next, uh, you know, year, right? Um, which I think has, has been really interesting. It was a pleasant surprise to me. Um, I'm not sure. What what did you think about that? I guess like NFT carnage compared to like if crypto was going to pull back. I think you're starting to see that divergence between kind of like the NFT assets as cultural capital um, and a new paradigm. And then crypto as being the currency in which they're denominated. So for me, I think NFTs have always been priced in dollars um, in the back of people's minds. I think obviously there's, you know, a lot of folks and funds that have 
ETH um, and they got it really, really cheap. So for them to price in ETH terms makes a lot of sense. Um, but if you really chart NFTs in dollar terms, I think you can see that cycle a little bit better. Um, and I think mm -hmm. most of the new entrants came in with dollars. Um, and so until you can pay your mortgage, your car payment, or you collect your salary in Ether or other crypto, I think that it's it's hard to really make the case that NFTs are fully priced in, in, in Ether or Matic or whatever it might be. So that was interesting in that sense, but I agree with you. I mean, it's crazy that punks are $80,000 floor. I think when you bought your, your ape, um, I think the punk floor was something closer to about two ether, which is what, like $3,000 yeah. at the time. So the fact that we're still up, you know, multiples of that in dollar terms and also ether terms, I think it's, uh, it's been very, very impressive to watch. And also it speaks to the quality of the projects that have held up that way. Right. Um, not just punks, but obviously a lot of the early art blogs and even some of the more hyped up projects that came throughout um, 2021 that are still holding up pretty high Ether values versus mint price. It's 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 impressive. And it really speaks to the fact that, you know, NFTs are the future of culture, among other things. Right. And I think you bring up a an interesting point there that I want to delve into a little bit, because I, I spend a lot of time thinking about this where, OK, We've had this massive pullback in asset prices across the globe. Um, NFT is obviously not immune from that. We pulled back a lot, but still at the end of the day, when you compare like the, let's say the two year, the two year price difference, right? Uh, of NFTs and in your example, CryptoPunks where like when I bought it, the floor was somewhere between like a thousand, three thousand bucks. And now the floor is, you know, what is that? 20 times, 30 times bigger. Right. And it's like, holy shit. Like, this kind of has proven to be kind of like a hedge against inflation. Now, is it on the time frame that people expected, right? Where right now you have CPI peaking or, you know, way higher than it was before. And, you know, you have asset prices coming back because the Fed is actually fighting inflation. But like on a two year stack, like and like the right NFTs have proved to be like good inflation hedges. Right. And crypto in general. Right. Because like even if you look at the price of Ethereum, and even the price, of, I don't know where Bitcoin was off the top of my head two years ago, but the price of Ethereum two years ago was like 550, right? 500-ish, right. I remember, around there. And we're still, it's still up 100% over a two-year basis. It just pulled back, right? So like, even though there has been a lot of pain, if like I fell asleep on December 21st of 2020, uh, yeah, of 2020, and I woke up today, two years later, I would be like, oh shit, like I did pretty good not realizing like the fluctuations that have happened in between. Yeah, it's that path dependency that, you know, makes or breaks traders. I think that's the difference between a lot of the folks that, you know, really focus on the short term uh, and then people more like yourself who are thinking about the next five, 10 years uh, and then everybody in between. So it really is that path dependency that it's going to determine, I guess, the way that your returns look. And that's why I think people should really make an effort to think from the beginning, you know, this, this funds, this, investment that I'm making, is it a 10-year investment? And will like DCA through time? For example, a DC investor, right? Like he has almost become the face of just being really, really, uh, you know, sober about getting excited about things pumping and, you know, remaining that same way when things really drop a lot and just accumulating through time versus some of like more of the, you know, hypey traders, some of which, you know, were very, very famous and then blew up this year just because they got caught at the wrong time. So, you know, the crypto space, the NFT space is so small that we still kind of like know everybody. But if you start thinking about what that would look like in 10 years when the market has grown to, you know, more traditional finance size, 
um, you know, the equity guys don't know, you know, too many of the credit guys. They don't know too many of like the macro guys. Like it's, it's just becomes so big that you start kind of like losing that ability to look at every single corner. Where in crypto, we still kind of like see the DeFi guys, the, you know, pure protocol guys, the NFT girls and everything in between. So it's been, I think this is a moment to really enjoy being here, being in the space and, and being able to, to take from everything and learn like, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to chase. Um, and make that decision for you know, the next five, 10 years, which is really when you're going to collect your payout. Right. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that. It's been like, I, I think it's been a learning experience for a lot of people this year, which is, which has been good, right. Which is hopefully we can grow from here. Um, I guess with that, like I, I want to, what, what was your biggest, what did you say your biggest mistake was of 2022? Like, what do you think your biggest learning experience was? Yeah, I'll so start with mine. Big... I'll start. Okay, with, I'll start with mine. Is I I don't think I hedged out enough, right? Like I I sold some stuff, uh, but I I should have, you know. And I think part of it is because maybe I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh, I don't want to sell this. Like I there were there were things that I knew. I'm like, all right, but like you know, I don't want to sell it here because what if it keeps going higher? Meanwhile, like I've experienced a huge return, uh, like very quickly, and I'm just like, oh well, I think ten years from now, uh, it's going to be significantly higher and just being like not not realizing it's like yeah like i could sell it here and, and buy back everything and more like at a lower price if i wanted to and just kind of maybe leaning into the fact that i wasn't trading anymore i think that was my biggest learning lesson for this year is that like i think at the end of the day especially when you have inflation running so wild you have central banks that have turned everybody into uh a uh like everybody's short rates, right? Everybody's been short rates for the last 20 plus years. And it's like, you have to realize that once that regime change starts to happen, you also have to balance your portfolio accordingly. And I think that was the mistake that I made is that I was just like, oh yeah, like I can withstand a 50% drawdown and like forgetting like how, you know, it's like, well, I'm not levered. So like, it won't hurt as much, but like, no matter what, it always hurts. And I think that that was my biggest learning from, from 2022. I think most people would tell you that's probably, you know, 2020 hindsight, they would have sold, you know, their apes at 500 and punks at, you know, whatever they were at the beginning of the year, 300K coming off like a $500,000 floor in September of, of the year prior. For me, I think, you know, obviously we'll love to go back and, and do that. I I was bearish spot going into this year, just for the reasons that, that, that you flag. And I sold 95% of my spot exposure. But I decided to kind of keep what I call the barbell portfolio. So I had stable coins on one end and then JPEGs on the other. Kind of hoping to, you know, capture the convexity if it kept on going up uh, and making sure it was protected on, on, on the spot price. And, and the mistake that I made there was not realizing, you know, how high the correlation was going to be on the way down as well between spot prices and, and the JPEGs. Thinking in dollar terms, I think my JPEGs in ETH terms held up pretty well. But it was that, again, you know, when I look at, hey, I want to go buy a house or I want to go buy a car or whatever. It's like, oh, shit. Yeah, well, 15 <laughs> is no longer $200,000. And, right. and I think for me that and then just timing, I had some right trades um, and I just either overstayed my welcome or didn't wait long enough um, to really profit from them. I, I, the combination of both, you know, looking back at the year, that's that's what I'm trying to change for next year. How's the uh, how's the ApeCoin trade? Uh, where where are you at on that right now? 
it's going well. So I took uh, I took some profits on that initial pump, which was part of the thesis, right? People are going to say, wow, 200, 300,000 APY makes sense uh, for you to like maybe have some on. It didn't like the liquidity is not that high. So you just needed enough players to come in and it, it ended up pumping to like 450 a couple of times. So it gave some room for profit taking. Uh, and then I'm staking some Eaton's and have the ape coin with it. My entry level was around 325 ish on Thanksgiving weekend. So still pretty comfy. It was like 350 last. Obviously, again, right? Could have sold her 440. Could have made a lot more money than I'm probably gonna make if it stays at this level from here till the end of the of the first quarter of staking. But also just thinking of probabilities. You know, I think Yuga will continue to provide some sort of utility to ApeCoin. Also keeps me engaged in that ecosystem. It's not a big stack anymore, and so it's a good way to kind of just stay on top of things. And and we saw yesterday with whatever Jimmy trial they're doing, there'll be some kind of like ape angle to it. So it's going well. You know. Best return would have been just to sell everything uh, at the top, but at the time you don't know that's the top. So I think right. you, know, you just want to really kind of like almost broaden your distribution curve, trying to hit it, you know, to the right side and 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 reassess as you go through time. Right now, I feel pretty comfy, you know, collecting almost a couple hundred dollars uh, every few hours from the staking. Not too bad. I, I uh, what do you what do you think of the new the new announcement that came out uh, yesterday? So well, it was very interesting to see the kennels pump so much. The kennels, which obviously had no royalties up until, again, I guess today, they turned them back on. Um, they become kind of like a accelerator um, in the in the ecosystem for both apes and mutants. Um, they were always, to me, like almost like an afterthought. Um, so the fact that they are pumping so hard, I think, is very telling. Um, I don't have too much insight into like the lore and everything of, of the ape community or the ape project um, overall. Um, I think it's super interesting that Yuga has been using like all the different elements, their ecosystem to deliver values. So it gives me a lot of promise for, you know, things that are dear to my heart, which are the Mibits, uh, the original stable coins <laughs> of the metaverse at like two and a half free ether. Now punks and Man, I was. So I was I was waiting I like I had a counter going on uh, for this and and one more topic to see how long we could go without talking about them. So you, we hit the Mebits counter. We have we have one more counter to hit. <laughs> so I'm not I, I'm sure you know which one it is, but I'm gonna I'm gonna try to push it off as long as we can. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah, no, you know I love the Mebits. Um, I think they're they're beautiful. I think they're very very early and ahead of their time. Um, I'm excited for what you guys are going to do with them. I think, again, you know, looking at what they've been able to accomplish with apes, mutant dogs, ape coin, I'll be foolish to, to fate that um, they are now, again, the cheapest entry into the ecosystem. But I think it's just a matter of time. I think it's just a matter of time and making sure that, you know, again, you would take advantage of the lulls in the market to build backs, accumulate, um, wait for your thesis to play out. And then, you know, hopefully when that does happen, you're able to to have also, I guess, the ability to say, okay, my thesis has played out. I am going to cash out. I'm going to take some profits. Um, or if the thesis really changed, the ability to say, okay, this is why it changed. But if not, just going in with a plan, I think it's, uh, you know, 80% of the time, you're probably better off than just winging it every single time. Yeah, and I think you you bring up a, a valid a valid thing that we you, you kind of went over and I saw that this morning Gordon or, or somebody else that tweeted should we turn back royalties on on the kennels and I was like oh I'm like that's interesting 
And I know you have some thoughts on royalties. Uh, I have my thoughts on royalties. What are your thoughts on them turning royalties back on after having them off for a while? I think it's interesting because let's face it, right? PFPs, nobody's paying royalties anymore. Um, especially using some of those marketplaces that popped up where there are four traders. Um, I think the royalty model as kind of like, this is the way we're going to build our business for PFP projects is, uh, is probably about to expire. Um, I think royalties for artists are great. I think they really encourage alignment. Um, it's a good way of almost kind of like giving back uh, and making sure you stay kind of like always thinking about the future together as a collector and an artist. For PFPs, um, obviously they, they were benefited by, by the gigantic bubble that, that we saw last year. And to project that forward, it's probably a bit foolish. Um, so while, you know, I really don't have any specific opinion, I think most, most of the traders um, that are buying and selling candles today are probably doing so without royalties. I saw, I think it was NFT statistics, um, they had a tweet out a couple of weeks ago about, you know, the effective royalty rate on board ape trades was like 1% or even lower than that. Um, you know, I think, again, you know, it's a community that's very focused on trading on the floor price. So of course, that's going to drive towards these kinds of marketplaces. Um, I don't know how much you're going to be able to collect from turning on royalties, but I think it does send a signal saying, hey, we're paying attention. We want to make sure that we're able to monetize our creations. How do we do that? by you know, hopefully delivering value. So it just says, hey, we're looking, we're gonna continue working. I think that's a net positive for, for the space. So yeah, I mean, along those lines, cause I think about this a lot with 90CC and admit one is like, okay, like I, I am a proponent for creator royalties, but I also think that you shouldn't be blocked, right? So like, I don't really like the open sea blocking of marketplaces, right? Cause ultimately like there's workarounds for that regardless. Uh, and it's like, if I, if you bought an asset, you want to say you own that asset, right? Like you can't say like, well, you own that asset as long as you trade it like here, right? Like you don't buy a t-shirt and say, well, you only own that t-shirt in the state of New York, but you don't own it in the state of New Jersey, right? Like, like that to me is like, I, I very much am like, yes, you should have sovereignty over your assets. But I also think that as I think a lot about this is that you should lead with the carrot and not with the stick, right? And so it's like, you should incentivize people to want to pay those royalties if they wish to be part of the community, right? And they wish to, you know, like for, I think something as easily with, with what Yuga's doing where it's like, yeah, like, guess what? If you bought uh, an ape, uh, the, the doggo without royalties, then like you can't use that to like power up your mutant ape or your board ape, right? And then all of a sudden you have people that want to pay royalties because they want to get access to it. It's your own asset. If you're like, well, I don't, I only want to trade it and you can buy and sell it, then sure, you can go on those marketplaces that don't pay royalties. But if you want to be like a contributing member of the ecosystem that gets access to stuff where, you know, ApeFest or, you know, the, the airdrop rewards or all these things, like you're going to, you're going to have to pay royalties. Right. And I think that what we're ultimately going to go towards is this system where sure that that asset could be traded, let's call it black market um, that for just easy naming terms, right? Where you can play, you can pay it, you can you can play the price appreciation in a royalty-free way. But then if maybe I buy it and then like I pay like the foregone royalties or however it is that you structure it to enter back into the system, then it can come back into the system and now be like a reward-bearing asset. Like I think that that's probably where we go long-term because 
to your point is like, there's going to be, there's projects that people trade, right? Like that people are just like, ah, I don't care. It's just like, there's a lot of liquidity and people are trading and I'm going to, you know, pump and pump and dump them or whatever. Right. But then there's other projects where, and I think Board Apes and Yuga has done a good job at creating this ecosystem around their actual assets where people are going to be like, well, if I trade this without a royalty, then like, I don't get access to Ape Fest. Right. And it's like, yeah. you know, and, and from Yuga's perspective, why should they provide access to incentives and rewards for people that are not paying those, the royalty rate, right? Like that, I mean, that's my opinion on it. I agree with you. I think, you know, limiting where you can trade your token just completely goes against the ethos of the space. I saw it with the Nifty Gateway uh, bubble where a lot of the artists that came in were just trying to cash in on the hype. And those artists are now long gone. I think projects that choose to go that way, kind of like away from the ethos of crypto will probably suffer the same um, long-term kind of like, not consequence, but I just think they're not here for the right things. And so it's part of the game, right? You come to crypto, you come to this space where it's all about self-sovereignty and, and being able to fully own your assets without anybody in the middle telling you what you can or can't do. Um, and you should respect that. So I agree with you. I think that um, creators, um, artists, project sponsors were a little bit, um, let's say, spoiled. Um, although I don't mean that in a negative way, but you know, they they took it full advantage of of this bubble. And um, you know, some of them were able to amass amazing treasuries and raise funds from investors and the like, um, create large communities and able to finance you know, events and different perks for them. But obviously, those times are gone. So I think the the fact that you know these businesses have to evolve is not a negative thing, but a positive thing, just like social media evolved from MySpace and High Five and even just like MSN Messenger to what it became. Like it's just part of natural, you know, technological and human evolution. And so projects need to evolve, maybe a subscription model, like the one you are almost describing, right? It's, it's kind of like you pay to be a part of it. You pay to, to kind of like get the rewards that are accruing as you go through time um, is the right way forward. Um, I don't have the answer. I think, you know, again, going back to the fact that the NFT space is so small that everything gets bunched together, PFPs, art, memberships, tickets, all these different things. Uh, you know, we will have different answers for the different categories. But I, I, I do think the ethos of, of crypto should be respected if we're using the crypto rails to, to power up these this networks and these communities. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think ultimately, fundamentally, like you have to stay core to the core ethos of crypto and work within that framework. And, you know, it's like if you're a creator, then you want to incentivize people without necessarily having to be like, this is the law to be like, hey, like I want like I, I mean, like even just me, like as a, you know, community owner, community creator, like I want people that want to be part of the community. Like I want right. people that are like, yeah, like I, I want to be part of this. Not where it's like, what are you doing to, to pump the price of my token? It's like, dude, like, I, I mean, sell it. Like, if, like, and that's been my response where people are like, well, how are you going to pump the price of this? When are you going to drop a PFP? I'm like, if you're waiting for that, like, please sell it. Like, I don't want you to be part of this community. And if that drives down the price, then that's fine. There'll be like a clearing price where people that are like, oh, well, I want to be a part of this community. I want to do something with this. Um, that I think ultimately that's that's what you want as a community owner and a member anyway. Um, you mentioned something interesting. Uh, like, you know, a lot of people were coming in during the bull sucking uh, liquidity out of the market. Like, who do you who do you think 
was the be- not the the worst perpetrator of it, right? Like, who do you think did it? Um, Adam, like, I, I have my, I, I'll, I'll go first. I think Pac rugged the community of so much money, and like to sit there and like literally with everything that they did, it like to me is like a joke of like why people even still collect Pac. Like, whenever I'm in a a chat or somebody's like, oh, like in Pac, I'm like, dude, this is laughable because he has taken so much money out of the community and just like walked away. Um, I, I think them and, and Kevin's is probably whatever project was pixel moms is, is if that's what it was, I think those, to me, I think that those were like the two most flagrant abusers of the bull market of the last run. I want to know if you had any opinions on, on who might've been up there. Yeah, no, I think, you know, those were the high profile ones. Um, impact did deliver a ton of value first and then use that to suck a lot more liquidity out. And I think that gave him an opportunity to, to achieve that that last that liquidity uh, pool. I think it's actually like the smaller projects that you and I probably didn't hear about, but that came in, got people hyped up, new entrants hyped up, that kind of almost made them believe they'll be the next punks, the next apes, this and that. And in the aggregate, really took away that marginal new entrant because their first experience was with some of like, you know, I don't even remember the names. There were so many of those little projects mented out, rug pulled, and they did it and did it again. The fact that we remember, you know, Pixelmons and Packs, it just tells me that these little, you know, rug pull projects were super successful because they never faced any consequences. They came back and kept doing it. And they really mm-hmm. took away, you know, kind of like the people that maybe you and I onboarded and then on their own free time went and tried to buy something and mint something and, and just let themselves kind of like just go along with the hype. Um, and so to me, that was actually the, one, one of the biggest things last year, like not being able to educate more people and really help them to think, hey, really focus on what you're doing, figure out who's behind this and, and just make sure that you're that you're being careful. Um, and and but if you want me to give you like a big, big name, I'm, I, I'm just I, I want to say as far as one big project that that rock pool i think it was mechaverse um mm, they yeah. they i remember perfectly how they were able to manufacture hype and fomo um and they, they were even, they were i think they were like the one of the first projects that had you grind on discord right where it's like to get on the allow list like you have to do like a million things or something i remember i remember hearing about it I, I wasn't involved. I just like watched from a distance. I remember they got to like eight ETH per review and this was like $30,000 at the time. And, and and again, you take a step back and you think, okay, why does this warrant $30,000 of people's money? It's like that was a small car at the time, right? Like that's like, I think, I mean, my mom's house in Mexico is probably worth that <laughs> to be honest, right? Like, why is that? And, and so, yeah, that project to me was, I think when you really started to see the cracks in, in the hype bubble. Right. Yeah, I, I, that makes sense. That, that was, was that in 2021 or 2022? I don't even know at this point. I like, to me, I feel like the 21 years. It's like the last 18 months are like one year to me. It's all like squished. I'm like, even like earlier, I'm like, is that 2021 or 2020? I don't even know. Um, I, I want to start talking about, um, the, uh, like outlooks for next year in, in a second, but I want to kind of go over is like, I mean, we have so many things that we could talk about from a macro level, from like the war on the Ukraine, the pivot in rates towards actually raising rates, um, the the 3AC, the Luna blow up, right? And then FTX blowing up. I mean, what, what do you want to talk about? I think like real 
real quickly before we start thinking about like the future here. I, I there's so much to talk about there. Um, I, I I think I've been personally fascinated with this entire FTX situation, like as it was happening in real time, uh, especially like last month. I couldn't stop. I couldn't take my eyes off the screen of being like, "Are you fucking kidding me?" Like just every like piece that got unraveled more and more. Um, I was just I, I still I'm still dumbfounded by it of like how he was able to manage this massive Ponzi. And how he was able to fleece so many smart people. Like, like if you look at that cap table, and I, I know people have been going after, like, like the celebrities and, and stuff like that for, like, endorsing it. But I'm like, dude, like, if you showed me that cap table and was like, yeah, these guys want to do, like, they want you to be a spokesperson. I'd be like, yeah, sure. Like, where do I sign? Right? Like, these are literally some of the smartest investors on the planet. What are your thoughts on FTX, this whole thing unraveling? How do you think he was able to do it? Like that, I think that to me is like my first question that I always ask myself is like, how was he able to do this? You know, you mentioned the other blowups in the year and I think FTX is also part of this. The cult of personality, which is something that we see in crypto a lot, right? It's like people think there's like this godlike figures and they follow them, they never question them. Um, usually a lot easier when they make the number go up. And, and I think it's very pervasive. I think it's also a big part of, of human nature. I mean, we see it with global religions, right? They usually require like worshiping of one entity or individual. Um, and so not just FTX, not just, you know, Luna, but also 3AC. I mean, it was two dudes there, but, but the also, same time. But to your point, right? Like it doesn't just happen in crypto, right? Because we see it happen, you know, Zuckerberg, Bezos, Musk, right? Like well, these are just three people off the top of my head that are like, yeah, there is that cult of personality where people are like, yeah, these people can do no wrong. Like they're, you know, the smartest people in the room. I, it's, it's interesting, right? Because it's playing out so, so frequently in the crypto world, as opposed to like the legacy world. Yeah. I think, you know, crypto just accelerates everything, right? Just the fact that it's 24 seven and global and really decentralized in that there's nobody in the middle telling you yes or no. Um, and I think I've said it before, you know, really technology enhances human nature. And so that's why so many of these things happen in crypto, because it gives you the ability to to almost like stake or invest in, in those people in one way or another. Right. Like a investor in Australia will be have a, have a hard time buying like Tesla stock directly, but you can go and buy FTT tokens or Luna you know, on your crypto app at any time in the day. And so I think that's why crypto accentuates it. Um, more specifically, FTX, I mean, I was perplexed too. I mean, I think it, it, it caught everybody by surprise in that, you know, it really seemed that they had figured out. And by then, by they, I mean, FTX, obviously SPF was at the top, but you can't pull off a scam or a Ponzi of that size without some help, right? Whether it's willingly or unwillingly. There's a team behind them or with them that that pulled this off. Um, and so it just it's just very, very sad because it's brought a spotlight into crypto that we definitely, you know, I don't want to say we didn't need because we definitely do need to clean up the space and we need to make sure that crypto and blockchain is, is not a dangerous spot, especially for amateur, especially for newbies, especially for people that might not have the backgrounds that you and I have in like traditional finance and understanding the risks of different things. 
Um, and, and it was just wild to watch it. And it was wild to watch it happening on Twitter. Um, and and <laughs> uh, yeah. so many different as players coming. Dude, as opposed to like mainstream media, like the, the thing that blew my mind was once it started unraveling, like the first piece from the New York Times was a puff piece, right? And then the Washington Post, I think was the second piece. And that was like another puff piece. And I was like, oh my God, like you want to talk about like the bull case for Twitter. The fact of the matter was that like, shit was breaking on Twitter and like people were actually like coming out with facts and not like, Oh, well, like he was a donor to like our owner's political part. It was just, it was blowing my mind. It was blowing my mind just yeah. watching this unravel in real time. But even before that, right? Like the, the Caroline tags, even Sam's tags, ZC tags, like the whole thing went down in front of our eyes. I keep thinking of like the financial crisis and, and Lehman brothers and, and those images of people, you know, walking out of the Lehman offices on, on that Sunday night in September of, what was it, 2008. Um, and, and you kind of just had to wait for the information to come out. You had no idea what was going on. You know, once I, I came into the industry, I found out that other banks were sending lawyers to like execute like different trades directly on paper outside the offices. And it, it's a crazy thing. <laughs> um, but, it, but that information was held by maybe, you know, 100, 200 people in the world. Um, as Versus this today, and even like the Luna stuff, where we're all on Twitter and kind of like seeing it play out, uh, you know, directly tweet by tweet. And, and so it was super, super interesting. Um, sad, sad, terrible that, that there's people like that um, in the space. I think, again, I don't think it's just a crypto thing. We saw it with Enron, we saw it with Theranos. We've, you know, we, we see, again, we see the big ones, but there's also little ones that happen all the freaking time, right? That's why we have such yeah. a large law enforcement efforts in almost every country. Uh, but it's it, it's sad. And, and I really hope that it helps people understand two main things. One, you know, really counterparty risk, especially in an industry where you have no recourse, right? You send stable coins or Bitcoin to a wallet. That's it. There's nobody you can call to get that back. So really understanding your counterparty risk, not just as a retail investor, but also institutionals, right? Making sure that Okay, who am I doing business here with? And then two, you know, self-custody and the ability to say, hey, I own these assets. I'm responsible for them. Let me take advantage of that. Comes with its own yeah. challenges, of course. Um, but, you know, hopefully this, this spotlight that we're getting in the industry because of what Sam and those bad people did this year, can, you know, we can use that energy and channel it towards helping more and more people unramp the right way and understand counterparty risk and, and the power of self-custody. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think like I'm, I'm going to knock on wood because I like was thinking about this like a week or two ago that I I'm like, dude, I don't know. Like I because of self-custody, like I know how uh, because of self-custody, I managed to escape like the 3AC blow up, the Luna blow up and the FTX blow up. Right. And I had friends that, you know, some friends got caught in Luna um, or some friends was OK through Luna, but then they caught cut in FTX and like Again, like as I sit back and I think about this entire FTX situation, there's like a couple things that come to mind. One is like, what was it about that? Like he was like, Sam is obviously really fucking smart, right? Like he was able to kind of perpetuate this lie and like have people at the highest levels, like believe him. And they're like, yeah, well, this kid is maybe like so autistic that he's definitely smarter than us, right? Like he's definitely, he's definitely, he's definitely that guy that's like going to run circles around us. So like, let's give him our money because he's been growing hand over fist. 
And like, it's like, and I know like even as like, I remember that weekend going into the blow up as like, I was talking to friends and people were like, yeah, like Sam, Sam is definitely the safest guy in crypto. Like he's definitely the safest guy. I'm not pulling my money out. And they, those people like, you know, they were in stables, right? They were like farming, farming tokens in stables and being like, dude, they're like, I cashed out near the top. I I rode the cycle perfectly only to get blown up in literally like non-self like custody trusting somebody else not your keys not your wallet which was crazy right because he was able to be this charlatan that like kind of like gave people this this sense of security right because you're like oh this guy is so fucking smart right which again and and that perpetuates kind of like one of the things that always comes back to my head is i i know somebody came wrote this this thesis on twitter i haven't really seen anybody else really follow up with it where it's like maybe he wasn't as smart as we thought, right? Like we always were like, oh, he's this genius market maker that came from Jane Street and he was like a Wall Street whiz kid and now he's a crypto whiz kid, but maybe he just wasn't as good, right? And like that theory was basically that like, you know, they started FTX to get access to like, the fact that he had access to order flow, he had access to company, to customers funds. He had all, like he had every edge that you could ask for as a market maker and still wasn't able to make money means he like he wasn't as good as we thought we were as we thought he was right but he was able to perpetuate that lie through continuously fundraising and you know posting false profits or whatever false whatever it is that he's falsifying but like that to me is just like it's just wild right it's just so wild to your point of like the cult of personality where it's like people want to believe right that that was even like with madoff right where there were so many whistleblowers with madoff that were like dude, there's no way that the numbers that he that he's posting are real. But people are like, No, well, I like my I don't even know what it was 20% returns, like with no risk, because he's writing covered calls or like whatever the fuck his strategy was. It was like the same shit with Sam, it was just much more opaque, right? Because it's much less regulated. Um, which is, you know, sad, you know, good and bad, right? Like, because it, it leads to it's like, okay, we do need some sort of regulation. Um, the thing that's scary is does this lead to overregulation in in things that shouldn't be? Because like at the end of the day, like DeFi, I think was pretty successful, right? Like there weren't DeFi blowups, right? Like all the failures happen at centralized entities. That is where we we get failures in in the traditional world as well, right? It, it, but to me, it's like it becomes really interesting what the future looks like in terms of regulation. Um, you know, and I know uh, I want to talk about that in a second because I'm sure that that's stuff that um, you spend a lot of time uh, talking about and, and thinking about um, in your position at Fireblocks, right? Like, is like, what does future regulation look like? And like, what, what do you think ends up happening because of all this mess? Sure. Well, just, you know, DeFi definitely withheld a lot better. We did have some losses on DeFi, right? Based on hacks and, and certain bad actors in there as well. Um, so just... Just want to put it out there right it's not a hundred percent it's much better than c5 but it's also important for folks to really you know, try to understand what they're putting their their funds into when they when they join different d5 protocols as far as regulation goes i mean it's it's super interesting if you think about crypto being what 13 years old um with bitcoin having been born what 2009 um but really like economic activity beyond just transferring bitcoins back and forth is maybe what six seven years old DeFi is three years old um the fact that we're speed running the book uh and the history of finance in, in such a short time 
really opens up, I think, good opportunities. And to your point, um, a lot of risks when it comes to regulation. You go back to Wall Street. I mean, it took many, many decades for us to get to a point where the regulation did a better job at protecting customers than having no regulation. I think the issue we have today, especially in the U.S., is that you know our regulators are uh, governments composed by people that are quite old. Um, and you know, I started to see it myself mid thirties. I look at stuff that I have young uh, brothers-in-law that they do, and like they're teenage, and I'm like, what? I don't get it. <laughs> and so I can't imagine, or you know, how like a seventy-year-old legislator can understand crypto or understand, you know, why we're so drawn to it. And I think that's the biggest risk is one, you know, the fact that our regulators, our, our people in government don't really understand the technology because of their age. Um, and two, uh, apathy, apathy to engage with them, not from the industry. I think, you know, Fireblocks were part of the Blockchain Association, which is one of the largest lobbying groups for crypto in, in DC. Um, obviously, when when this, uh, you know, senators and Congress people see us coming, they're like, oh, well, they're just here to pump their backs. You know, they're 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 coming at us from the fact that if we regulate them, they're out of business. So there's an implicit bias. What happens when, you know, G-Money, when Sergio, when these, when like people, like regular users engage with them? I think that's the difference. And we're not doing a good job of that. We're not doing a good job of really engaging from the consumer side from saying, hey, you know, like crypto is better for me because this, this and that. Can you please take a better approach that? Who actually does it? It's the people that are against crypto, right? Like the Molly Whites or whatever her name is, who are like constantly writing on how bad crypto is, constantly kind of like putting the industry down, constantly highlighting some of the flaws and mistakes that happen. And so I I think the risk is that, yeah, we get bad regulation, um, but I think it's also on us as users, as proponents of crypto, uh, as beneficiaries of crypto to really say, okay, how can I raise my hand and really get engaged with this, you know, regulatory body, or like, even if it's like stupid little things, like writing a letter to your congressman saying, hey, you know, this is my story in crypto. Um, I think that as more people start to to realize that we have a voice um, and they start using it, um, we can help ourselves a little better. But yeah, regulation's coming. Um, sensible regulation can be pretty good. Obviously, kind of like the decentralization, crypto maxis will always argue against it. Um, but I do think if our goal is broader adoption, if it's really mainstreaming, onboarding, you know, our parents, grandparents, we're going to need some guardrails for them to not get, you know, stuck with funds in, you know, the FTXs of the world and the like. So it's a very double-edged sword. Um, yeah, no, I, I agree with you, you know, because I do think that in order for crypto to really grow, like we just... We just need whatever the regulations are going to be. We just need to know what they are. So that way we can yeah. operate. We know what's legal and what's not legal. And we can start operating and begin innovating within that framework. Right. And so, you know, something is as as old as, you know, like um, a credit investor laws. Right. It's like, I don't know. I think that's kind of unfair. Right. Like it's like, you know, if. I think that's one of the beautiful things about access to uh, what what draws people to crypto, right? And it's like getting access to like this startup that you can actually have like an impact on, right? And instead of being like, oh, well, only, you know, the, you know, the biggest investors in the world get access to it. It's like, well, 
that kind of sucks, right? And it's all only because I'm not an accredited investor. And it's like, if, I, if I'm willing to take on some of those risks and I understand and I'm like financially uh, literate, then I should, whether I'm accredited or not, shouldn't necessarily matter, right? It should be, it's like, it should be like a financial literacy test, right? Like that should be the test as opposed to a credit investor test. But I mean, that's beyond me. I, I was I was going down uh, the rabbit hole there, but I wanna ask you first, I, I wanna ask you two things. Is one is, what are your thoughts on rates? Do you think we see a Fed pivot next year? Um, what do you think that does for, for risk assets? Uh, and then two is, and more importantly, is how does this affect the crypto big fuck market? Because I know you're a man of math and culture. So we need to understand ultimately, because that's what this podcast is about, is what sends crypto dick butt to the moon. All right, rates. I mean, 12 months is a lifetime in this day and age, especially in crypto. Um, obviously, if you've seen inflation kind of start to taper off, uh, not just in the US, but across the globe, um, I think that's a combination of obviously the hikes, but also the fact that we were in a late stage cycle of consumer demand. And again, everything we spoke about at the beginning, all the free money, obviously that's all, there's a chain effect there. So definitely we're gonna see inflation come in. Um, pivot, I think it's hard to, to, to like put one meaning to it, right? Some people think pivot is just the Fed letting go of the accelerator when it comes to the hikes, which they did last week. Right, so they hiked less than the previous hikes. Is that really a pivot? Is it them just pausing and not hiking for a few meetings? Is that the pivot or is them cutting rates? Um, I think they're gonna pause after a couple of, of more hikes. Maybe they do you know, 50, 25 and then they pause. Um, I don't think Powell can just uh, start cutting immediately unless we really see the economy come off a cliff. Um, which, you know, there's a possibility of that. I, I do think these things take time, as we've seen with inflation, right? They started hiking at the beginning of the year. We, we still saw inflation really shoot up as they were hiking. Um, so there's not just any medium, immediate transmission mechanism. I do expect them to at least pause for a while, um, reassess, and then depending on what happens with, with the numbers, you know, they go meeting by meeting, or have a gigantic spending plan that's about to be voted on. Uh, if that sparks inflation again, obviously it's gonna be hard for them to, to start cutting. So, you know, I think I'm less cautious than I was at the beginning of the year, just because we've seen the majority of the move to the downside. And so I think that even if we do revisit the ether lows, for example, which were like 800 from here, you know, that's a 33% decline from today's prices versus at you know 800 coming from 4800 and so a, a lot more optimistic about the year i think i'm going to start to finally build back my ether bag as we go through time now what happens to you know the ultimate triple point asset i think is um you know it's, it's up only for the bots i think the bots <laughs> are really the best nft you can own i love my punks but you know now they are a yuga asset um, and so there's some some risk there that they just you know turn them into mutant punks or whatever. Right? Whereas dick butts are just so pure, they're so perfect. They predate crypto. They are part of internet meme culture. Uh, the community is really, really, really strong. Um, the art is just beautiful. The vibes are immaculate. Um, the math is perfect, right? One dick equals one butt, and and there's nothing anybody can ever do to change that. So <laughs> your rates go up, dicks 
don't care. Rates go down, VIX don't care. I think that as we go through time, this is the apex predator of NFTs. Uh, and you want to make sure you at least have one big butt because you know I, I'm here at my mom's house in Mexico and you know, my nieces are three and one, and and you know I have some big butts for for them. And I can't imagine when 30 years down the road and I'm you know maybe not in my deathbed yet, but you know they'll be in like their mid 30s and they'll be like, hey, uncle, padrino, why did you not get us a big butt when they were under a million dollars? And and so I hope that nobody has to have that conversation with their like you know their kids, their grandchildren, their nephews or nieces in the future. We're like, you were around when big butts were like two ether, and you didn't buy at least one. Um, so yeah, big butts. I, I think they're they're the past, present, and the future. And 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 you know I I can't. I can't stop smiling just when I think about them. And I'm so happy that that you're part of the community and there's so many like great members that are part of the community and and really people are not in it for the pump, which I think is a big, big difference. You know, we go into the Discord and people are, are, are talking about memes and it's just innuendo. Like it's really a part um, where, where you come into the Dickbot community and, and you're just naturally more happy. And, and that's kind of like the NFT I want to have in my wallet, the NFT where like you see it and you just, you just smile. Like it's just how can you not smile? It's a dick with a butt with a dick on it. Like it's it's just it's poetry. It's visual poetry. <laughs> so yeah. Oh man, I, I love it. I love it. that was uh that was a great monologue on, on dick butts. I, I really, really appreciate it. Um I, I guess to add to my to my point on the macro is you know, I I agree with you. I, I personally think the pivot is probably um I'd say when the Fed stops raising. Uh, I personally will consider that pivot. What I was, I was much more bullish up until I think yesterday. What was it? Yes, I don't even know. My days are. I think it was yesterday or Sunday night when uh, the bank of the bank of Japan uh, raised interest rates. I'm like, holy shit! I'm like, you're telling me the bank of Japan? And I need to to do more reading on it. But I'm like, if the bank of Japan is worried about inflation, like we are fucked. Like we are, we have a huge, huge problem ahead of us. Um, I need to read more on it um, because I admittedly haven't had time on it. But up until I was reading that, I was like, all right, maybe we start getting a pivot in the back half of next year, which means, you know, the market starts discounting that a few months in advance. So maybe we get a Q1, maybe late Q2 bottom or something, uh, late Q1 bottom or like Q2 bottom of, of risk in general with a pivot actually coming a few months later. But I will say that that reading that news out of Japan kind of made me made me like pause and being like oh shit like we might we might not be as close to to up only as uh as as i thought we were right um i don't know if you if you did any reading on that yet but like super curious on your take if you have any sure i mean japan has been running its own crazy macro experiment for the last 30 years um they're ahead of the u.s when it comes to demographics right they have an aging population and so they have a little bit of a different problem, I think, than than we do on this side of the world. Um, I wouldn't read too much on it as it impacts kind of like the rest of developed economies, again, because they've been running this crazy experiment for, for such a long time. Um, for me, you know, just kind of like in closing, not just crypto, but, but everything that we touch, especially in the U.S., where the consumer makes up 70 percent of GDP, uh, the fact that we're going to have less activity whether it's you know down 25 down 50 or down 10 but just given how much you know percentage the u.s consumer takes up it's bound to have an impact and so retail is a big big player in crypto i've probably you know the largest player in the space much more than institutionals and so i it gives me pause um that's why i want to just like you know start accumulating will be 
difficult to to really time the perfect bottom uh, but you start looking at the bigger picture right you're looking at a decentralized computer um, that is becoming the foundation for you know the future of finance for the future of culture for the future of social media for the future of regular media um, and and at what level does it start making sense and and you give yourself an ample range when it starts to like you know think about valuations does japan matter yeah it does a little bit right but i think the the bigger picture is the fact that you know we're gonna have presidential elections in the u.s in what is it, two years so the campaign's gonna start in a year the democrats obviously you know face a big risk both in the senate and with the president and i think they're going to find a way to if we do hit you know come off a cliff to really re-stimulate the economy just like the U.S. government was able to turn liquidity on, you know, in a second over that weekend was in March of 2019, 2020 during COVID, um, you know, the, they'll find a way to just pump liquidity back into the system. So I'm not too worried about the externalities. I am worried about the short term, what happens when, you know, people start losing their jobs and, and you know, people can't pay their mortgage. I think it'll be short term. Uh, lift. I think we'll find a solution for that, you know, within the next six months after that starts happening. Um, but I think that's going to be probably some of the best opportunities to to really buy high quality assets, uh, not just crypto, but like, you know, some of the stocks that you and I love that uh, we've talked about chips, you know, large you know, retailers and the like stuff that's not going to go away. And now you're getting a really, really good entry point especially I start thinking like, you know, will this company be around in 10 years and will it continue to be a foundational part of, of my day? Um, just like, you know, crypto is for younger generation and the like. So very, very exciting opportunities coming up. Just a matter of, of being smart about them. What you just said kind of brought something up, you know, and we didn't get a chance to talk about it. And I've been spending a lot of time thinking about this for the last like two, three weeks is like, okay, here we are talking about inflation. And I've always had this idea in my head of like, okay, I feel like with this inflationary bubble that every major bank around the world has been blowing for the last, you know, let's say since, I'd say since LTCM, right? Since 1997 is really when this all really, really started. Um, so the, and it's just been getting more and more insane. And I feel like over the last, you know, 30 years, 20 years, 25 years, um, I feel like just central banks have been waiting for some sort of evolution in technology, right? Because we all know that technology is very, very deflationary, right? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, as uh, we get better at processing speeds, the cost per, uh, per kilowatt and the cost per commuting power goes down. And, you know, just, what is it, 22 days ago, we have chat GPT gets released into the wild. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, dude, I fucking love it. I've been like, dude, like ChatGPT do this, ChatGPT do that. I'm like, holy shit. Like not only can like, you know, I've already started outsourcing, let's say my, um, my mood boards for like creative direction on like design stuff. But it's like, you're telling me now, like I can like send an email. I can create a job listing. I can do whatever it is that's out there. I can literally code without having to do any of this. Like that is so, so, so deflationary right and that like we're sitting here and we're talking we're thinking about inflation i wouldn't be surprised if it you know with the rise of ai and as you know people keep talking about gpt4 coming out in the next like 120 days or so like i'm so fucking excited i like i'm like i'm like willing to pay for this shit now right like i'm like this is going to change humanity and it's going to be so deflationary and i feel like 
the Fed and central banks and governments have been trying to buy time to find that real deflationary thing that will create this entire macro shock to productivity, right? Where all of a sudden you have a team of what used to be 10 analysts now can be, you know, brought down to one analyst that will run everything with an AI assistant, right? And be able to do all these jobs that you used to cost, let's say a million dollars in, in salaries and, and all this stuff. Now it ends up costing under a hundred thousand or 200,000, whatever it is, right? Like that is so deflationary that I think we're sitting here and we're thinking about all oh, the inflationary shocks to the upside. But then also it's like, but this productivity that we're sitting on that I'm like super excited about and I'm scared, right? Because it's like, I mean, if AI can do everything better than humans, like what does this mean for humans, right? Like, like, yeah. and that's a whole nother paradox. But like, I do feel like that is something that's really being overlooked is that if AI starts going mainstream as soon as like next year, what does that mean for deflationary forces coming into the market that all of a sudden we're like, oh yeah, inflation's a thing, inflation's a thing. It's like, all of a sudden it's like, wait a second, it might not be that big of a thing because people are about to start losing their jobs. People are going to start losing, you know, it's like, what does this mean for UBI? What does this mean for like a lot of things that we thought we had as a society? Like we thought we had time on this. Right. Like I thought it was like, oh, yeah, like AI is coming, but like it's 10 years away. Like we have time to figure this out. Like, I don't think we do. Like I like we have to figure this out relatively soon. And it's scary. And like also like the optimistic part of me is like this is like, what does this mean for humanity's productivity going forward? I, I don't even have a question with that. I just what what are your thoughts on on chat GPT from like a macro level? Because like these are things that I've been thinking about is like you know, we're sitting here thinking about inflation, inflation, but like we have this really, really, really big, possibly very deflationary event that's coming to us sooner than we thought. And like, what does that mean for like, and I know I'm asking you like this really conceptual question, but I'd just love to hear your thoughts on that. Sure. So first, you know, the inflation that we're seeing today, you're right. It's a hangover, not just from the COVID stimulus, but the last 25 years of loose monetary policies. Mostly in the U.S., and obviously, you know, that forces the rest of the world to to adopt similar things. Um, and and you know, it's a hangover. We, you know, as anybody who spent some of their 20s in New York City can tell you, right, you can always wake up on a Saturday a little bit hungover and kill that by going out to like Lavo brunch and just drink again and then drink again on Sunday and then just kick the can down the road and you won't experience six hangovers you'll experience one really big one by like Wednesday when you're done with like your little party bender so that's what we're going what we're going through today I think you know inflation um, is a sign of economic activity that's why you know central banks say we want to two to four percent inflation every year that means that the economy is working uh that means that you know there's economic value being created and and, and that has an, an effect on the price level of goods and services when you think about deflation you know it's a very bad force um usually because it just means the opposite right there's not enough economic activity there's really um people pulling back, um, if you're not spending money on goods and services, then those providers of goods and services are not receiving money and, you know, they're pulling back and it just, it creates a very vicious cycle. That's why, you know, the central banks are always looking for a little bit of inflation. When it comes to AI, um, 
first of all, I'm super excited about it. I am a big, uh, my mom's a teacher. I grew up around the school. And so I think AI is going to really help us bridge the gap in education between, you know, like the people around my hometown here in Mexico and those who have the opportunity to go to amazing, you know, public schools in Europe, the US, wherever they have really good education systems. And so from that side, I'm, I'm super bullish AI. I'm super excited. I can't wait to see it change the world. But to your point about you know productivity and what it's going to do, I think that it's super interesting first that it's coming for white collar jobs first, right? So like office jobs, it's already kind of done it. If you think about it, AI has already been around. Um, you will already kind of interacted with it when you want to change a flight on like one of the big airlines. You don't talk to a person anymore. A little chatbot pops up and you say, hey, this is my reservation number. This is what I want to do. And eventually, you know, an AI helps you with it or at least points you in the right direction. Obviously, that's getting a lot better. And obviously, you know, you and I can now log into a computer and access a lot of that and harness that potential ourselves for what we wanted to do, not just like an airline company or, or a big corporation like that. So uh, white collar jobs are really most at risk here versus, you know, uh, a plumber, right? A construction worker like AI ain't coming for that in a long time. And so I think it's going to be super interesting. I think it's actually going to probably uh, decrease the wealth gap in the sense that, you know, obviously professional jobs. I remember being on Wall Street and sometimes thinking, well, why the hell are we paying, getting paid this amount of money for the value <laughs> that's really getting created, right? For the people that have not been on Wall Street, it is really a regional industry of the tri-state area. Um, you know, people who went to Ivy Leagues can break into Wall Street, but the majority of the population on Wall Street went to like Holy Cross and just grew up in Long Island and they know somebody <laughs> it's, it's so somewhere. <laughs> It's, it's so it's funny you say industry. that. Yeah, it's so funny you say it because I remember I was having a conversation with a buddy of mine who was, uh, he was like a sell side broker or something, and he was like, he was like complaining about how much he got paid or something, and we're like, bro, like you could put a monkey in that seat, and they would print cash because of the because of the seat that you're in, right? Like to your point exactly. Sorry, I didn't mean to. <laughs> to, 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 to no, but up. it's true, right? Like <laughs> at Goldman, the rates desk, you could literally put a monkey there picking up the phone on the rates desk and print $10 million of revenue. Um, and so <laughs> eventually an AI is going to do that. And we're already seeing it with like, you know, electronic trading. Uh, electronic trading has really taken over a lot of like the more traditional jobs and it's left to kind of like the soft commission things you were talking about where people want to talk to another person kind of like be a soundboard like give me a good trade idea not just hey you know go and buy 200,000 shares of you know Anacota Steel and uh, <laughs> same thing same thing's going to happen for all these other industries where humans, you know, are not really necessary, especially very repetitive jobs. Like I love my colleagues at, at Fireblock, but the sales role for the most part is doing a demo and walking, you know, prospects through the same iteration of actions. Could we do that with like a video? Yeah. Could we do that with like a chat bot? Yeah. And, and so I think uh, AI is going to come for a lot of those jobs. And, and to your point, I don't think it's going to be like the next year that we're going to start seeing like significant job losses directly from AI, but it's definitely an accelerator. And um, any accelerator has, you know, drawbacks, like we'll see a lot of job losses, but the people that are able to harness AI and really, you yeah. know, lever whatever they're doing with AI are the ones going to be able to capture the other side right. of, of that. And you see, for example, with like, you know, cars and, and, and horse carriages, 
right? Like cars came about and like, you know, super efficient. You can get to a bunch of places, just pumping gas, not need to like feed an animal, take care of an animal and the like, right? Faster, safer, all, all the stuff. Um, and, and the people who mass produce cars got it insanely wealthy. Um, and, and we'll, we'll see that here in AI, like how can you use AI to, you know, to your point, the content creators just pump out like really good content or designers, or, you know, a lot of artists are like, oh yeah, it's coming for my job. Dude, it's, Maybe. it's so crazy. Yeah. It's so crazy. Cause like, I literally was just talking to somebody. I'm like, dude, when is there, when is there going to be like an AI lawyer? So I can literally just draft up like my, you know, whatever it is, the agreement is and like have it in law terms and be like, yeah, this is like from the best lawyers on the planet, right? Like, and I don't have to pay, you know, $3,000 an hour to, to have somebody like draft up something. It's, it's crazy. Like, I, I think it's, it's amazing. Be, it's amazing. It's, I, I love it. I can't wait for it. I think it's, it's funny because I was having this conversation with my friends who have little kids and it's like, well, how do you, and, and these are friends, mind you, that the last time I was talking to them, I was talking about NFTs and the metaverse and they're like, you know, like they're like, they looked at me like I had like 10 heads uh, popping out of my, out of my, out of my neck and they didn't listen to me. And then literally like, cause we had our holiday party last weekend. Um, I was talking about AI and they hadn't, they hadn't heard about chat GPT. And I'm like, bro, like fucking down, like go log on and like, just experience it for yourself. Like this is going to change everything. But then we're talking about how does this affect their kids? Right. And it's like, you know, like you're, we're talking about a world where you won't necessarily need to know how to program because you're going to have an AI that programs for you, but you're going to have to be able to think critically, right? You're going to have to be able to solve those problems like in your head and then come up with the solution, even though you don't know how to technically implement it. So I think like critical thinking has always been a very, very valuable resource. I think for humans, I think it's become even that it's going to be that on steroids to be like, oh, like. I mean, I, I think my favorite tweet of the last 30 days has been uh, somebody was like, this is the age of the idea guy is now upon us, right? Like how many times have you had an amazing idea, but you're like, dude, like I don't fucking know how to do this, right? Like <laughs> I can't make a, I can't make a website that does blah, blah, blah. And now you can, right? Yeah. And so I, I think it's, I think it's going to be really cool. And that's I, it's going to be fun and disruptive. Yeah. That's always been like, technology, I, right? I embrace it. I embrace I, it. I, there's kids that won't ever need to learn how to drive. And if you had told me yeah. that 15 years ago, I would have been like, what? Like, no, the driving is like, it's, it's actually like equivalent with like freedom and independence and like everything that comes along with it. And now there's kids that are being like my nieces will probably not need to know how to drive. I mean, they will, and they'll be yeah. great drivers. Cause I love cars, but <laughs> they will need to. And just to tie it all back to like, you know, where we are like NFTs and crypto, you know, we are going to need, uh, to be able to validate provenance of those ideas to be able to say, okay, well, is this AI generated? Is this human generated? Who came up with it? When they come up with it? And really that is where AI and blockchain technology would converge. And, and mm -hmm. I think that is like the big idea for the next 30, 50 years where, okay, we have computers that can create amazing content, come up with amazing things. Let's find a way to almost like timestamp them in the fabric of humanity in a way that's completely centralized. So anybody around the world with an internet connection can go back and say, oh, you know what? And we're not talking about just because somebody minted something two weeks ago, but in a hundred years, right? Imagine yeah. having a history book that we are able to look back a hundred years from today and find the exact point. Yeah, and say, okay, exact point in history. Like the genesis of that idea. And like, I think it's just gonna unlock so many things. Uh, technology is always scary uh, because it can also unlock 
bad things, but I think, you know, we have the power to harness AI, blockchain, and really build like an even better future um, as we go through time and hopefully you know, leave a better world behind this. If, if that's not people's purpose in life, then I'm probably not living right. <laughs> yeah. Well, dude, thank you for coming on. I appreciate the time. I, I feel like I could talk to you for like another hour or two. Like I, I, there's, there are other threads that I would love to go down. Maybe, maybe we have you on, uh, back on in, in a few weeks or a few months or something and kind of go down. This was a really good combo. I, um, I always love talking to you because you always have like good perspective and um, I appreciate it. I think it, the finance background from both of us allows us to have like a good conversation around stuff as well. So, dude, thank you for coming on. Thanks for uh, having happy me, man. Happy holidays. Dude, happy Feliz holidays. Navidad. Enjoy it. Yeah. Feliz Navidad. Thank you so much for, for the invite. It's really an honor to help you close out the year of, of, of the podcast. And, you know, congrats on all the success. It's been very inspirational as, as a friend to watch you continue to just, you know, break through so many paradigms, come up with so many good ideas and, and continue to deliver. Uh, I know how hard it is. And, and I, you know, I've seen it, you know, I've seen you offline as well. And, and I know how much of a toll it can take, um, especially because, because you're, you know, a disruptor, as you say, in your Twitter bio, but you're also a perfectionist and the world's not perfect. So um, I really appreciate all the work that you do for, for the 9DCC community and the admin what community and the community as a whole. You're an amazing ambassador to, uh, to the NFT space. So much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for the kind words. Uh, and everybody that's uh, tuning in, thank you. Uh, hope you had a, a great 2022. Uh, hope 2023 is way better. And, and thanks for tuning in. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>